0: Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and his unique plan for your life. Good morning. An answering crowd, how nice. Friday, I was in Atlanta. How many of you have been to Atlanta? Raise your hands. Is that all? Atlanta, Texas. Gotcha. There are some. I went there for a sweet occasion, even though it was all so sad. It was a funeral service for my step-grandmother, who died at 92. She married my preacher grandfather. They, my grandfather, decided he had to wait until she turned 70 to marry her, because he was 90, And to marry a 69 year old just wasn't seemly at his age. And Randy and I got lucky because after trying to figure out who of the family would come to a wedding and enduring family questions and little squabbles and things, they sort of eloped, but not really because they drove over on their way to the airport in Dallas to have a grand honeymoon to our little church in Grand Celine, Texas, where all your salt is mined and the little Morton girl lives with the umbrella over her head. And they came to our little church and walked down the red carpeted aisle and Randy married them, where I held little baby Catherine. And we walked next door to the parsonage and had a pretty cake on the dining room table with the town photographer taking pictures. So we got to witness this monumental wedding. And they had eight wonderful years together till my grandfather, who was working out on his farm, got stuck on a root, got his riding lawnmower stuck on the root of a tree and pushed it over the root. I mean, how many 98-year-olds are pushing their riding lawnmowers over the root of a tree? Kept going, didn't feel well that night, and died two months later. I mean, that's not bad. But in his heyday, he was pastoring in Houston and convinced the Texas Conference to buy a piece of land near the Galleria, not as close as he wanted near the Galleria. He couldn't convince them to go as close as he wanted, but it became Westminster Methodist Church, and he was was such a bold, brazen kind of guy. He would roll down his window and lean out the car window, much to his kids' embarrassment, and just say, hey, fella, and start up a conversation. But while he was starting this church, he would knock on doors, go door to door, brought in 2,000 members, which meant he had to knock on hundreds and hundreds of doors. He served in World War I and World War II, and I think that had to add to his boldness in some way. Last week's episode of the HGTV show Fixer Upper showed Chip and Joanna Gaines fixing up a house for a veteran an army veteran Have you watched that show anybody here yeah. Ha Well this book was one of my favorite Christmas presents it's a New York Times bestseller thank you Randy this couple takes fairly modest homes and makes them really beautiful, just show places. They're known for being Baylor alums, which I am. We graduated almost in the same class, so I feel like I know them. Yeah, almost the same. Um, Joanna is known for her love of shiplap. You might have a t-shirt that says hashtag shiplap. Anybody know what that is? Siding that you might want her to come put in your house from old houses. Chip is known for his love of Demo Day, that first day when you go and tear down the house. And he's known for being hilarious, which he is. They're also faithful, practicing Christians. In November, BuzzFeed ran an article criticizing the Gaineses for a set of biblical beliefs preached by their pastor. Before they ran that article, they tried to question the Gaineses about these beliefs, just picking at them, trying to get something controversial out of them. The Gaineses wouldn't respond. They knew what was going on. They knew it was nonproductive. They were trying to get something controversial going, so they didn't answer. So the best that BuzzFeed could do was dig up some old writings or sermons of their pastor and write something negative based on that. The Gaineses refused to respond to the article too, except in the following two ways. One, they encouraged people to be gracious in their response to the author of the negative article. And second, on Twitter, Chip wrote this He wrote, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Do everything in love. I've been thinking a lot lately, if you count the last few decades as lately, about what it takes to be courageous in our faith. It's less and less in favor to be a Christian in today's world. Political correctness is king. Anybody notice that? We Christians are quickly and easily almost gleefully labeled bullies, haters, bigots. As a result, do we find ourselves shrinking back, a little embarrassed, compromising our lifestyles a little more and more, going with the flow, laughing at jokes that aren't all that funny, afraid to speak up when it matters, maybe without even realizing it? We'd like to be popular, I want to fit in. We're all given a natural desire by God to belong. He did that on purpose so that we would seek Him out. But misplaced, that desire to belong leads us to groups that just bring us down and draw us away from Him. Oh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. But used well that desire to belong ties us closely to our good healthy families and healthy peer groups and most of all to him. Galatians 1:10 says am i now trying to please people or god Joanna Gaines says whether you're a stay-at-home mom raising beautiful babies she didn't even say mom She says, whether you're staying at home raising beautiful babies or CEO of a multi-million dollar company, let God speak into your life. Let his father heart come and say, this is what I have for you. That's key. Not believing the lies, but fixing your eyes on Jesus and walking into the truth. Is political correctness causing us to shrink back so that we're teaching and correcting our children less and less? Are we trying to look hip and with it for their sakes? Because we're blending in. Psalm 78, four says, we will not hide these truths from our children. I like to think that I'm like my grandfather, just bold, just leaning out the car window, hey friend, creating a relationship that will later help me share How the love of Jesus makes a big difference, all the difference in my life. Or that I would be so courageous that if the call on my life was to do something like start a church, I would knock on door after door after door. Or even if faced with a life threatening circumstance, I wouldn't waver but would stand tall for the truth. I like to think that I would have that courage. What is courage? Courage is the choice and the willingness to confront agony, pain, danger, uncertainty, intimidation. Interestingly, it implies having fear, but confronting it. Don't we think of courage, someone with courage, as Braveheart, the man on the horse leading everyone into battle who was already unafraid. That's not true. We can't discount courage from our own lives. The person who has courage was just like you and me, afraid, but decided to do it anyway. And I um, got myself into big trouble with this message because over and over in my mind, a song has been playing that I listened to that moved me. One of many, I'm sure, but the only one I can think of that just kept moving me, thinking of this, that I listened to as a young teenager on something called a record player in my parents' den on something called a console, big brown wooden thing that was sitting on something called shag carpet that used to be white, and I would lay there, and because it, it's music in my head, I thought of singing it to you, which would be a disaster. <laughs> but I have courage, and fear, and courage. And because... <laughs> To dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe. Let's go down a little bit. <laughs> to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go. There we go. And then, so there's courage, and then there's moral courage. Because courage, I guess, can apply to whatever you're afraid of and doing it anyway. But what good is that? Anybody can do anything they're afraid of and say, there I did it, isn't that great? But if it's not for something that's right, if it's not for God's truth, then it's wasted. So moral courage is doing what you're afraid to do, but for what is right, what is needed. So here we go again. This is my quest to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for that heavenly cause. And this is where it really got me. How far would I be willing to go? How much would I be willing to give up for what was needed? Would I march into hell for a heavenly cause? I hope so. I want to be courageous, but I'm terrified of being apathetic. What is apathy? Apathy is indifference, lack of concern. I think first and foremost that the fight for truth is the fight against our own will. It's the fight against our own apathy, the fight against our own indifference, our own lack of concern. It's the fight against the enemy's lies, the lie that whatever is in front of you right now doesn't really matter or it's not that big a deal or you can take care of it later, or it's someone else's problem. Have you ever had the intense urge to sleep? How about a college lecture class? And you try and you try and you brought toothpicks for your eyelids and nothing is working and you would give your right arm to be in your bedroom right then? What about during a sermon? Be honest, but not right now. (laughs) What about when you're driving? College driving, driving home. Remember the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember how Jesus was, he knew what was happening, and he had sort of been telling them, and they didn't understand, and he knew they didn't understand. But he he took all of his disciples with him, and he left most of them sort of in the outer area. But he took his best friends, Peter and James and John, into the inner area, and he kind of left them there under a tree. And then he was going to go further and pray by himself. And the Bible says some really... um, I mean, some really impactful things. Listen to these words. It says that Jesus was deeply troubled and distressed. Where else do you read that about Jesus, that he's deeply troubled and distressed? You had to be able to see that on his face. And then he actually said to Peter, James, and John, he said, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. I would think they would see that in his face. They would hear those words and they would just, you know, be stricken by all that. And he asked them at that point to stay there and keep watch with him. So they sat under that tree and um, what do you think? What did they do? They fell asleep. And he came back and he said, Simon, that's Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So during this time when they were sleeping under the tree, after he had uncharacteristically been deeply troubled and distressed, and uncharacteristically asked them to do one thing for him and actually told them, my soul was crushed with grief to the point of death. And they had fallen asleep. What Jesus had been doing was thrown himself over a rock in the garden and been praying to God so desperately with sweat drops that were like drops of blood and said, God, I'm so scared of what's about to happen. I'm filled with fear. He said, if there's any other way that you can do what has to be done here, can you please do something else? Can you please take this cup from me? However, not my will, but your will be done. That's what Jesus was doing while they were taking a nice restful nap under the tree. And he came back, you know, all shaken with what's about to happen and hopeful that his friends were on his side and praying for him, keeping watch because he knew people were going to come, maybe come and get him. And they were asleep. How disappointing. They were asleep. So he came back and he said, what? You're asleep? And he said, uh, and, and they just couldn't keep their eyes open when he came back that one time and they just didn't know what to say. He came back the second time. They didn't know what to say. He came back a third time. And the third time he said, well, go ahead and sleep. Oh, my gosh. If that was me, which, okay, I'm just going to say it is. It's me. I'm asleep at the wheel with Jesus. I know I am. We miss the urgency of the moment. And I, you know, I barely, barely get the reality of God. I get a tip, 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 tip little meaning of what God wants to show me about everything. I know that. I know I just barely get him. I barely get his love. I barely get the reality of him. I barely get the bigness of him. Every once in a while I get a big breakthrough and it's a tiny, tiny bit of him. I know that. I know I'm asleep at the wheel, and I hate that. I want to be courageous. I want to be leading the charge. But let me take a nap first. (laughs) I don't want him to come back the third time and say, oh, just go ahead and sleep. And then he said to them, go ahead and sleep. He said, have your rest. And then he said, but no, the time has come. Because in the distance he saw Judas leading the soldiers in to come and get him and take him to trial. He said, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then you know what happened? Peter jumped up, he pulled out his sword, he cut off the ear of a soldier. Now that's a lot like us, isn't it? We go, we're either making the mistake of dozing off or we're jumping up in some passionate mistake. (laughs) One extreme or the other. And Jesus said, no, Peter, that's not going to help. And he put the ear back on the man. (laughs) I'd like to say a word about truth. And then I'd like to say a word about fighting. Truth is really important. It's kind of like courage versus moral courage. You know, we can fight, but we need to fight knowing what we're fighting for. Just like Peter, you know, he was all passionate. He cut off the man's ear. Well, nice try. I know you you wanted to do something good. But maybe figure out what's going to matter. We want to be courageous. We want to follow Jesus. We want to do good things. But lots of people have fought for lots of things based on lies, based on partial truths, based on a little bit of the truth. Don't be one of them. Truth comes from God, period, there is no his truth, her truth, your truth, my truth. There's no you do you, I'll do me. There's no live and let live. There's God's truth, and we do God's truth. Period. That's all there is. We want to compromise and make everybody happy. I understand that. We are not mean people if we don't agree to that, okay? And we don't have to act mean. But let me just say, don't be deceived within yourself. Do not let your children be deceived. Do not let other people think you are deceived. God created everything. No one else created some other truth that's sitting out there for you to agree to. You are not being mean if you don't agree to some other truth that does not exist. And that's it. So, we are going to do a series called Believe. In it, we're going to look at 10 core truths of the Christian faith. It will help me and it will help you to get on track and back on track with 10 of the essentials coming straight from Jesus who happened to come straight from God who happened to create all the truths that there are. So it wouldn't hurt me and it wouldn't hurt you to join one of the groups and buy one of the sets of books that we're starting to sell this week out here at the Next Steps. Okay. If you think it would hurt you, come talk to me after this. In any case, Jesus lived and he didn't have to do that, did he? God didn't have to squeeze himself into a little molecule down on Earth and live unpleasantly when he could have lived up there and walk dusty roads and die a horrific death and be rejected for the most part, all of his life down here, to come down here. And tell us over and over, and he does say it over and over in the Bible. Look up truth on BibleGateway.com. And you'll see over and over, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, da-da-da-da-da. I tell you the truth, da-da-da-da-da. Or if you have an older version, verily, verily, I say unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you. He wants to make sure we know, I am telling you the truth over and over and over. I came to tell you the truth. I love you. I came to tell you the truth. So read the Bible. Get it straight from him. And then be here with other Christians and be surrounded by people who are seeking the real truth. Not some contorted, twisted version that somebody else decided was the truth. Get it from him. Paul in Colossians says you must continue to believe the truth and stand firmly in it. Do not drift away. Then let's talk about the fight. We're going to talk about that the rest of the time. First, we're going to define the word martyr. A martyr, M A R T Y R, is someone who suffers persecution and death for their beliefs. It sounds like the definition of courage, doesn't it? It was common in the days when the church was being established. All of the apostles died as martyrs. And recently, just last month, Pope Francis said something very surprising. We think of martyrs as being someone in history a long time ago. But he said, the church has more martyrs today than the early church had. Did you know that? So I'm going to show you a map. Why do you think there are more martyrs today than the early church had? I think it's because the world hates Christians for some reason. It hates them because it hated Jesus. He brought the light of God and the world prefers darkness because darkness hides the world's wicked works. This world map comes from Voice of the Martyrs. I don't know if you can tell what's red and what's orange. I know you cannot tell what is white. (laughs) There's a lot of the world up there that's white or light pink over here you can see. It looks like. All the red is restricted and hostile to religion. 80% of what's restricted, of what's persecuted is Christian in the world. That's according to Open Doors, which is a monitoring Organization. Another monitoring organization that didn't have a religious affiliation told us that. Um, Open Doors actually said that 100 million Christians are persecuted annually. Let me tell you a couple of stories. In Pakistan, Asya Bibi is a young Christian mother of five. She's been on death row for more than six years on a charge of blasphemy against Muhammad. What she did is, after work one day, she offered a cup of water to two Islamic coworkers. They told her they couldn't take it because it was unclean because she's a Christian. They, told, they actually demanded that she convert to, is, uh, to Muslim, to Islam. And she said, no, I won't, I'm Christian and I believe in Jesus. So she was arrested as having blasphemed Muhammad. And she is still sitting on death row, waiting for trial. Actually, it's been ongoing. Then I have a picture to show you from a magazine from Voice of the Martyrs. This is from Sri Lanka. It's a beautiful picture. This is a bombed out church in Sri Lanka. Buddhist monks bombed this church, and they're very proud of doing so. They wrote on it, the church is no more. And this is a young Sunday school teacher and her students. They are still meeting. As soon as it was bombed, they went right back and are meeting. The precedent for martyrdom was set in the Bible. The first Christian martyr was Stephen. He was killed in Acts 7. And Paul stood by and witnessed, and he was glad about it. Big wave of persecution started after that. And today I want to look at some martyrdom in Daniel. But as we do, I want, to realize, want us to realize that this persecution and martyrdom doesn't just apply to what you saw on the map there across the world from us. It's interesting because I wouldn't think of us as being persecuted here in America unless it was said by someone like this man from the Middle East a man who lives in the midst of persecution, a man who operates a house church out of his own home. That means it's a secret church. He's in danger just by operating this house church. And he talks about persecution in America. This is what he says. Persecution is easier to understand when it is physical, torture, death, or imprisonment. He says American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. The person who wrote the article that includes that quote said, Today, cultural disdain toward Christianity is increasingly palpable. He talks about it in schools and in medical facilities where people want to have the ability to make faith-based decisions and have a faith-based atmosphere. And it is not allowed. He says, rarely does a nation move from freedom to suppression overnight. So I'd like to say that you and I don't need to think of ourselves as victims. We are not victims, but we are realists and we need to be realists. It's time for us to be strong. It's time to protect the church and to be grateful for it and not take it for granted. It's time to protect the Bible, to be grateful for it and not take it for granted. The people in those red areas and most of them in the orange areas cannot have a Bible. And if they do, they may give their lives up for it. It's time to protect our freedoms and God's truth and to be sure and pass it down in its entirety to our children. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood for in Daniel chapter 3. They were living in a foreign land because they couldn't live in their native land in Israel anymore. Because their people had drifted so far away from God, they had become weak, and other countries had come in and taken over. So they lived and were ruled over by King Nebuchadnezzar, who built a giant golden statue of himself and decided everyone had to bow down and worship his statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were good God worshiping Jews and they refused to do so. And so in this actually very funny story, King Nebuchadnezzar just becomes hopping mad because they won't do it. He reminds me of the emperor who has no clothes because everybody can see how ridiculous he is, but they're all kowtowing to him. So he brings them in and he's so mad he says, uh, you have to bow down to my statue. And here's their reply. They say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, and this is so important, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up, even if he doesn't. Oh, he threw, he was in a rage. And he said, make that fire seven times hotter than it already is. And he got the strongest soldiers to throw them in. And the fire was so hot that it killed those soldiers just by throwing them in. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were fine. They weren't burned up. And a fourth person joined them and it intrigued Nebuchadnezzar. And he looked in there and he said, who's that fourth person? Didn't we just throw three in? And he said, bring them out. So they came out and there uh, had been an angel in there to protect them. And the three men were unharmed. They weren't burned up. Nothing was burned up except the ropes that tied their hands together. And Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden was all in favor of them. And he said, praise your God. He sent his angel to rescue you because you trusted him and you defied my command and were willing to die instead of worship any other God. And he said, so I make a decree that everybody bows down to your God. All of a sudden he's on their side. That was no big deal, he was just adding the Lord God to the long list of gods they were all going to worship. He even promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So they were very lucky. I'm not promising you and I would get promoted if we stood up for the truth. But you notice they were willing to live or die to be thrown in the furnace and to stand up for the truth. Jesus, of course, was the same way. It wasn't easy for him in the garden. He threw himself over the rock. He could have just said when he was arrested one word and avoided all the pain of the cross. It would have taken nothing for him to avoid what he went through. Caiaphas, the high priest, first asked him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. Pilate, the Roman governor, said, are you the king of the Jews? He didn't really want to hurt him. And Jesus said, you have said it. And they put him on the cross. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He never compromised the truth in anything he said or in the way that he lived. He was unpopular. It was dangerous for him. But he never stopped loving everyone around him. Truth and grace came to a perfect union in Christ. Grace alone is what people would have us offer them as Christians because it makes them feel comfortable. But it's too cheap, and it's not good for anyone. God doesn't give us grace alone because there's no good in it. It just twists us all up. We ruin ourselves. We destroy ourselves when there's nothing but grace. Truth alone is just legalistic And there's no love in it. Truth and grace is the perfect, healthiest, most beautiful combination. And it's what we strive for in the perfect imitation of Christ. People thirst for the real Jesus. And we show Jesus when we show them grace and truth together. Anything less than both is neither. Jesus, to me, is this last stanza of the impossible dream, which I'm going to, I am going to do the last bit. Don't laugh. You have, well, you have to laugh. You must laugh, or I'll cry. <laughs> and the world will be better for this. That one man, scorned and covered with scars, still strove with his last ounce of courage. On January 2nd, Chip Gaines wrote a blog. He wrote, disagreement is not the same thing as hate. Don't believe that lie. He also said, this living out loud thing is not for the faint of heart. Joe and I don't want to hide We want to live brave and bold lives. And we wish that same thing for you as well. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.